So, our title, Are You Thirsty? Are you thirsty today? There's going to be some food coming later, you know, and we're going to get some good food and some, uh, some ways to slake our thirst a little bit later, and I'm hoping that we'll all enjoy that. I know you've all brought some food. I think it's going to be fantastic. But where does it come from, you know? How many of us here would regard yourself as a gardener? How many gardeners do we have here? Not many, there's a few, okay. Uh, anybody with an allotment? Uh, sort of, okay. My, uh, my wife's an amazing gardener. She should be here giving this bit of the talk, really. Amazing gardener. We don't have a big garden, but we get a lot of good produce from it. And I'm, I'm showing you some of the pride of our crop this year. We've had a lemon tree for many years, never produced any fruit. This year, the small little lemon tree, which is about, it's in a pot, and it's about maybe this tall, it produced about 20 to 25 of these lemons. And they are awesome. They're amazing, these beautiful yellow lemons. And there's something about eating your own produce, isn't there? Yeah. Those of us who do that, we, we know. Yeah. We know it tastes better, you feel good about yourself, you thank God for the, for the crop, and so, I'm going to put this. Okay, there for now. Uh, it, it's a wonderful thing to have a crop. I grew up around farms. Not, I'm not a farmer, unlike Tim. Tim's really a farmer, right? Yeah. Tim's a farmer who comes from generations of farming stock. And whatever you know, anybody needs to know about farming, you can just ask Tim. And I grew up around farms and working on farms, and there's something about being connected to where the food comes from that does help your gratitude. We're not in that kind of world anymore, are we? And we have to be more conscious of thinking through where things come from to retain our gratitude. And we're going to be looking at something today as to how God helps us to retain a sense of gratitude and awesome, uh, the awesome things that God does for us. It's important to retain a sense of gratitude, especially when times are tough. And let's face it, for a lot of us right now, it's a tough time. Um, some of us still suffering from the effects of COVID. Long COVID is a real thing. And no one knows how long long COVID is going to last. Some of us affected by that. Some of us affected by the thought that we were going to get a mortgage and now we can't afford one. Or we have a mortgage, and we're not sure we can afford to keep the mortgage we've got. Some worried about our jobs, or perhaps we don't have one, and worried about finding one. Some of us worried about the costs of electricity, gas, and the petrol we put into our cars, and the effects it's having on us. Some of us worried in general about the economy, and of course, generally speaking, worried about world security. The situation in Ukraine, the war there, and I feel so much for our Ukrainian brothers and sisters and those of you here. I know the language barrier is a bit of a challenge, but I hope the, barrier, the, the language of love will come across as we strive to do our best to love our Ukrainian friends who are going through the most unimaginable challenges that most of us can't even begin, we can't even dream it accurately, let alone understand it. We're thirsty today. I think we're all thirsty one way or another. Our world is thirsty. It's thirsty for peace. 
It's thirsty for contentment. And fundamentally, I would say, our world is thirsty for hope. And maybe that's even true for some of us in this room, even though we would say that we believe in and trust God. And yet, just because you believe in and say you trust God and know God doesn't mean that we live our lives with hope every day. It doesn't mean that we always feel hopeful. There are situations in my life, my personal life and my family life and other things, that I would really love for God to sort out right now, once and for all. And yet, the challenges persist. And there are purposes in those which we haven't got time to deal with today, but it's a cha- when, when things don't get sorted out, it's a challenge to our ability to hold on to hope despite the way things are looking and things really are. And so I'm hoping that we'll learn some things today from how God helped Israel to understand the, how they could have hope and, and be grateful and then look at how Jesus also reimagines that for us in our context of the New Covenant. So we're going to have Dawn come up right now and read our main text for us from Leviticus 23. So Dawn is going to come up with her excellent teacher voice and, and read this passage for us. It's some excerpts from Leviticus 23 and from verse 33 following. So. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, on the 15th day of the seventh month, the Lord's festival of tabernacles begins, and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. For seven days, present food offerings to the Lord, and on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present a food offering to the Lord. After you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of Sabbath rest, and the eighth day also is a day of Sabbath rest. On the first day, you are to take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, willows, and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters, so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thanks so much. Thanks, Dawn. So some background here. We've got an Old Testament harvest festival, is what's going on here. And this is taking place in the Jewish seventh month of the year, uh, the month uh, of uh, perfection, right? Seven is the number of perfection. And in that month in the Jewish calendar, there were three festivals. And the first festival is the festival of trumpets. And you've got all these trumpets being blown from the, from the temple. And they are to announce a time of reflection, possibly mourning, certainly fasting. And where are we with Israel with God? Where are we? Are we okay with God? How are we doing spiritually? This was a, a, a call to spiritual reflection. So you have the feast and the festival of trumpets that comes first. And then shortly after that, we get the day of atonement. When God says, I'm glad you prepared yourself. I'm glad you recognized that you need me to forgive you. So now we go through the day of atonement and you are now forgiven. You can be assured of my presence with you and of my forgiveness of you. And shortly after that, we get this festival that Dawn just read about, which is Sukkot. 
which is the, uh, the, 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 the time to remember that God has been with them, a time to rejoice over God's provision. It's a harvest festival. There are two harvests in the year. One is in April, and this is the later one in the year, at this time of year. And in fact, the 9th of October this year, today, is the beginning of this festival in a Jewish calendar. So we're actually starting this festival now, and it will culminate next Sunday. It's an eight-day festival, starts today, finishes next Sunday in the Jewish calendar. And so this is what's going on. And during this time, the Israelites are called to live in booths. Sometimes this is called the Festival of Tabernacles, sometimes the Festival of Booths or the Festival of Ingathering. And they live in these booths and they're not allowed to work on the first day and the eighth day, but they are, the rest of the time, to celebrate the harvest with joy. They're commanded to be joyful. There's another passage similar to the one in Leviticus uh, elsewhere in the New Testament that says you've got to be joyful. Uh, and isn't it a nice thing that God sometimes has to command us to be joyful? Uh, we have reasons to be joyful. Sometimes we just forget. And so uh, what we see is booths are built rather like these. These are modern-day versions. My wife has Jewish colleagues who keep them in their garage the rest of the year and then bring them out at this time of the year and stick them in the garden. So if you're Jewish in this country, you'd stick them in the garden. Back in Israel, you might well build them on the roof. You know, they have flat roofs there a lot, so they might, you might build it on the flat roof of your house. Or maybe you sometimes would go out to the countryside and erect them there. And the idea is you have to live in them for those eight days. So you move out of your house, you go to live in this booth, which in Israel is not a bad time of year to do it. And a lot of Israelite people in this country they take a holiday to Israel this time of year so that they can live in their booth out there because it's rather more comfortable than in, uh, in the UK at certain times. Uh, so they, they eat out there. They have games out there with the kids. Uh, they have ceremonies out there. They're meant to sleep out there. Uh, the idea is to put the branches of trees across the top but leave gaps so that you can see the stars at night through the gaps. These are not well insulated. right? These are very basic. And they're meant to re remind the Israelites of their travels through the desert. When God was in a tabernacle, in a tent, and the Israelites were in tabernacles, tents, or in other temporary shelters, and they were uh, rickety a lot of the time. They, sometimes they stopped for a while, but other times they kept moving, moving, moving. So they had to be able to lift these things up and pack them away and carry them somewhere else and put them back up. And you sleep in there and you eat in there and you do all the things you do as a family in there. And then you pack up and move on the next day. This is meant to remind them of the temporary nature of their time on this earth in some ways. And of the fact that God was with them through all of that inconvenience and vulnerability. God was with them. A wonderful celebration for them to remember this. Very important festival, one of the three festivals where all Jewish men were required to travel to Jerusalem from wherever they lived in Israel. They had to come to Jerusalem and attend this festival, one of the three. Sometimes they brought the whole family, but at least the blokes had to come. How would you feel about that, fellas? Three times a year, you've got to leave your family. Well, actually, it's quite an attractive idea now, think about it. Uh, uh, all the jobs don't need to be done. But anyway, you have to leave and travel on your own somewhere and, and live in a rickety shack. Sounds quite manly, doesn't it, actually? Some of us blokes would like that. But that's what's going on. And it became, of all the festivals, post-exile, when God brought the Israelites back from exile in 520 BC, it became the most important for the Israelites on an emotional level. We've been rescued again. God rescued us from Egypt. He's rescued us from exile. 
it became very, very important. The festival was characterized by joy, a lot of color, a lot of greenery, a lot of decoration, a lot of lemons, like I showed you. And uh, so let me ask you a question. Why would God want them to do this, frankly, strange thing? Build a, tent, build a, 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 a shack, live in it for a week. What do you think God was up to there? What's he trying to achieve? What comes to your mind? What's he doing? If you're living in a temporary, flimsy home, you're forced to rely entirely on God rather than your wealth or defenses in the home to keep you safe. Yeah, you have to rely entirely on God. You're in a very vulnerable place. Yes. It's also representative of whether you recognize it or not, your very existence is fragile. That we're temporary, but God isn't. Which we tend to forget. Yeah. We are temporary. We tend to forget that. Yeah. Reminds them of what's important. You can have a lot of clutter in your life. Right. That you fill your life with, but when that falls stripped away, what, what's left? What's Reminds you of what's most important. It's a bit of a Mary Martha moment. Yeah. Mary, maybe, you know, like if you put all that on one side for a while, this is what really matters. Yeah. Yeah, Dawn. Is effort involved? Okay. There's a sense of sacrifice, efforts of sacrifice, which helps us connect with God. It's, it's meaningful to make that sacrifice. Another hand was up there? Two hands. Maybe empathy for those who are still in a vulnerable position. So that's a really good point. Simeon. A time to rest and reflect on God. Yes, Roger. So it's pointing to Jesus, but also yes. um, it's about how we live our saved lives before we arrive at the kingdom. Mm. We're living our saved lives now in the already but not yet. Yes, we're yes. already God is with us, but we're not fully with God forever. Yes. So it's a reminder of that in-between place we inhabit. True for the Israelites, true for us too. Really good point. God saved his people from Egypt. God fed his people in the desert. God tabernacled with his people, um, and this is to remind them of his faithful presence through tough times. They were insecure times. I like this quote from a book called Introducing uh, Judaism, uh, the Sukkah, uh, which, uh, as he says in that quote, uh, it's a frail and temporary booth, could hardly have provided enough safety from danger in the desert without God's protection. Its roof must be covered only with detached branches, plants, and leaves, leaving gaps. The stars can be seen. It's reminding them that they are vulnerable, as somebody has uh, already uh, mentioned. And we do have some messianic overtones, which you've alluded to there, Roger. Uh, the Messiah coming is a part of the expectation here is this is a great celebration but the day will come when Messiah will arrive and, and the harvest of Gentiles will come in. So they're celebrating a material harvest, but they are also anticipating a harvest of the Gentiles. And that's mentioned or alluded to in Haggai chapter 2, which we won't turn to now, but uh, many of us will know we're looking at the book of Haggai right now. And in Haggai chapter 2, uh, Haggai mentions the fact, because in fact his prophecy 
uh, in chapter 2 is during the Feast of Tabernacles. Interestingly, it's actually this time. And he talks about the fact that, um, that in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth, shake the nations, and then this phrase, what is desired by all nations will come. He's talking there about Messiah. And he's the one who will unite all the nations. He will come and fill this house, the temple, with glory, says the Lord. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. He's looking forward to a time which is not literally about the temple. It's more about the temple becoming all that it was meant to be, which we understand to be Jesus coming to be the temple with us, tabernacling with us, and that becoming a part of what our experience is. But we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But there's a better, bigger harvest coming is part of what's going on. Now, let me ask you to think for a second here, just a bit of um, personal reflection. Much like, not exactly like, but in a sense like, those pilgrims travelled to Jerusalem, to this festival, to come for a specific purpose, to see and be together and worship together, to worship together, to be reminded of God, to be refreshed in faith and loyalty to Yahweh. Much as that happened in the, what, thousands of years ago, and much as that was the case for those Israelites, in some senses, we've pilgrimed here today. We've pilgrimaged here. We've come. We've taken time away from other things. Time away from work, time away from family, time away from responsibilities, from hobbies, from all kinds of responsibilities. We've come here, in some sense, to seek God, to be refreshed, to be reminded, perhaps to be repentant. We've come here, we've spent time and money, especially you lot driving from Dorset, a lot of petrol money. Why have we done that? Have we come here with intent, with purpose in mind? Have we come here looking for something from God? Not to come because it's the thing we do, or just to see an old friend, though that's a good thing, and very glad to see old friends. But something of God, though. This isn't a temple in the old covenant sense. But it is a place where we tabernacle together with one another and with God as we collect together to worship. Hoping, expecting that God will show up for us as a church. And for us as people, individuals, why are we here? And I would say, for most of us, it's usually the case, and probably should pretty much always be the case, that we don't know precisely why we're here. Like, I'm going to come as long as God does this, that, and the other. We can't do that with God, make preconditions on our worship together. Mm -mm. But maybe the right answer is, I'm here to see what God is going to do. I'm here to open myself up for God to do what he wants to do in me and in us for his glory.
As we go into looking at some things about Jesus now, and then towards the Lord's Supper in a moment, in a few minutes, I'd like to encourage us to open our hearts up to say, I'm a pilgrim, I'm here for God. God, teach me what you want to do. So with that in mind, let's turn to John chapter 7. And look at what Jesus may be able to teach us at this very same festival. Jesus goes to the temple. And he's there at this time, this festival time. And in John chapter 7, we'll just look at a short part of this passage for today. In verse 37, we'll pick it up there. In verse 37, it says, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So here we have Jesus in the temple courts, there in this festival, declaring something very significant. And he talks about the water. Now, in the time of Leviticus, the festival was characterized by the things we've already mentioned. But at the time of the exile and after, there were two other traditions that were added to the Feast of Tabernacles. And one was the pouring of water on the altar, and the other was the lighting of really uh, uh, sort of candelabra on really tall pillars in temple courts that illuminated the whole of the city. Massive, huge fires um, which burned all night. So there was light and there was water. And the water was taken from the pool, uh, the pool of Siloam. It was taken from there and, put and poured onto the altar, symbolizing the, uh, symbolizing the, the prayers for rain, for the autumn rains to come, and also symbolizing the, uh, a remembrance of the water from the rock that God provided the Israelites with in the desert. That was the, that was the idea. So in, let me see if this will work. Okay, so I was in Israel in 2018. Uh, this is the pool of Siloam. Uh, as it is today. It's dug up not that long ago and discovered and, and dug up. And you will, uh, there's not much of a pool left, a little bit of water here and there, but that's the site of the Pool of Siloam, where they would, the priests would go to, to take some water in a pitcher, and they go back to the temple and pour it out on the altar. They walk round the altar once each day of the festival, pour it on the altar, and on the last day of the festival, they walk around the altar seven times and then pour the water uh, on the altar there, symbolizing water from the rock and a prayer for, for rain. It also symbolized the future pouring out of the Spirit of God prophesied in Ezekiel. So when they did this, they poured out this water 
And they, from, the Pool of Siloam was significant because it was the main water source for Jerusalem, and it was a stream, it wasn't a stagnant pool. So that's why living water is a thing, because they call a, a stream living water as opposed to the dead water that's a, a cistern or something. So you've got this living water, it's, it's taken from living water, poured on the altar saying, God, please fulfill your prophecy, your promise to us that the Spirit will come. And then Jesus comes. He stands there at that time, perhaps when the water ceremony is going on, and says, I am that living water. Come to me, and you will get this living water. Later on, his disciples understood it was the Spirit. The Spirit is what gives us new life. It gives us life to the full in all of its fullness. This is what Jesus came to prophesy, or came to give. And the, the anticipation of this was enough for the Israelites to dance with joy even before they received it. The festival time when they poured out the water and had these lights lit was a time of great joy. And particularly that last night when they walked around the altar seven times and poured the water out, um, they, would, they danced and sang and read all night. So they go, all these blokes, and it's almost all blokes, right? All these blokes are dancing all night. They're dancing, celebrating, and reading Deuteronomy all night. That's what you did. You just The blokes would meet up at the temple and read Deuteronomy and talk about it all night. And now and again, they say, enough reading, let's get up and dance. Then they dance around for a while. And I guess they'd sit down and say, now let's get back. Where were we? Deuteronomy chapter 17. Okay, now what do you think about this bit? And that was their way of having fun. I mean, that was a delight to them. Because they knew God was with them. They were being reminded of that, celebrating his provision, his kindness, his patience with them, bringing them back from exile, and looking forward to the day that we enjoy. I mean, one of the ironies of all this is that, unfortunately, Jewish people don't understand that this has now been fulfilled, and we have that personal presence of Christ in us. We have the living water in us now that isn't just a, a religious thing or just a reminder or symbol or something. It's, it's the living Christ in us. In other words, we're not just given something religious that's helpful, we are transformed. I mean, the message of Christ is one of transformation. It's not just improvement. It's not self-improvement. It's transformation. It's becoming what we were designed to be when we were first made. It's becoming all that we can be in Christ in this life. It's, it's enabling the fruit of the Spirit to, 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 to grow and develop its, its greatest possible maturity in you and I, so that we become the most loving we can be, the most peaceful we can be, the most patient we can be, uh, the most kind-hearted, the most whatever, the most we can be, at least in this world, in this body, in this life, is transformation. And the Gospel of John is full of all this. And one of the reasons why the Gospel of John is so amazing is because there's so much about transformation in it. Uh, we've got, um, let me find, okay, so John chapter 1, uh, he, he's come to tabernacle with us. This is what God has come to do in Christ. To, to dwell is the same word as tabernacle. So he's come to tabernacle with us. And because he's tabernacled with us, that's why we're able to have transformation. In chapter 2, the, the water water here we have as a theme water is turned into wine what would you rather drink water or wine at a wedding you want not only wine but it's not only just wine is it at that wedding it's the best wine saved till last the water is transformed into wine or chapter three born of water and the spirit 
a transformed life so that we are born again into a new life, a life that we were always designed and planned for God for, to have for us. Or John chapter four with the woman at the well, at the well, water again, what kind of water? She needs water that she won't have to keep coming back and, and getting the water again and again and again. And Jesus said, yeah, I can give you this water. It wells up to eternal life. Please give me this water. She's tired of being thirsty. She's her life of, of uh, quite considerable mess, we might just say, from what we can read in the scriptures, is now not just being improved, it's being transformed. She goes and tells the whole village, come and see this man who told me everything about me. I mean, it's amazing. She, the whole village comes out. There's a harvest there, which we'll talk more about in a minute. Transformation. Or chapter five, uh, the man at the pool in Bethesda, in, uh, is it, I think it's Bethesda, the man at the pool who can't get in, the water is stirred. The water again is stirred by an angel. He can't get in. What does Jesus come and do? He doesn't need the water because he's the living water. So he says, okay, I'm going to heal you. What does he do? He heals him. A transformation for this man by the power of Jesus operating in and on his life. And then we've got John chapter 7, which uh, we've already talked about. And then I'll just skip to John 13, where water, Jesus takes water, brings it to his disciples and washes their feet. And Peter says, no, 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 you're not going to touch me, Lord. Uh, that's, that's not going to happen. And Jesus says, well, if I don't wash you, you are not part of me. You need my water. His identity is transformed. A follower of Jesus, more than that. A disciple of Jesus, more than that. A student of Jesus, more than that. He's, he's becoming a brother to Jesus. He's becoming somebody who, who can be with him forever. That's the, it's the transformation. I guess what I'm trying to remind myself, actually, here, in my own challenges, right? I've got, if we had time, I could bore you with all the things that are, I find challenging in my life right now. Despite whatever challenges I have, I've got to remember, and we need to remember personally, and as a church, Thames Valley, we've got to remember, we have been transformed by the living Christ. And we are called to a, a transformed life. And that transformed life will transform others as we take the living water we've been giving, given and it pours out through and from us to other people, to the world around us that needs it. And my appeal would be, if you don't sense that right now you're living a transformed life, maybe you had some transformation and then it's kind of like, I don't know, it's faded somewhat. I don't know what, how to, what the right phrasing is for this, but whatever is compromised transformation, somebody will come up with a good word, right? Some, whatever's compromising our sense of being transformed, then that's our priority right now. That's the thing to focus on. That's the thing to pray about. That's the thing to go back to the scriptures for. That's the thing to talk about with your husband, with your wife, with your best friends, with people in church that can listen and understand and let's help one another. If the west of England and the southwest of England and the places we all go and live and work are going to be are going to become more Christian, if we put it, if they're going to know about Jesus, it will be because transformed people are in these places. It won't be because there's a meeting there. It'll be because transformed people are living transformed lives in those places. And then it doesn't matter whether there's 50 of you or five of you or one of you in those towns and villages and for some of us hamlets doesn't matter 
One transformed life is enough, isn't it? Is there anything damming the waters, the living waters behind you? You just, it's not getting through. Something stopping it flowing. If there is, let's talk about it. Because the harvest is plentiful, Luke 10, but the workers are few. And in John 4, don't you say it's four, month, four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the harvest. Look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Look at your work colleagues. Look at your families. Look at your neighbors. Ripe for harvest with people who've been transformed. How does this happen? How do we maintain? How do we, how do we continue to be transformed? Well, this is where we get to the Lord's Supper. We don't have a festival like they had in Leviticus 23. Our harvest festival has some characteristics similar to that, and it's a good thing to do. But ultimately, what keeps our hearts and our minds in the right place, open to God, is what Jesus did on the cross. In John 19, they came to Jesus. They came to Jesus. And of course, the, uh, they didn't break his legs because they could see that he was already dead. But as they, uh, as they were there with him, as he was on the cross, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony. His testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth. His testament, he testifies so that you also may believe. Blood and water again. Jesus' sacrifice released the blood of forgiveness, and you could say the water of new life, the living water and the blood of the new covenant is what draws us into a completely different relationship with God. One that we can enjoy, one that we can celebrate, one that reminds us of how much God loves us. Jesus' blood and water poured out in death gave you and me new life. How fortunate we are. When we pray in a moment, we're going to pray before we take the bread and wine. And then we're going to sing a song called Reckless Love. And it's about how much, how powerful God's love is for us. Before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. You have been so, so good to me. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. You have been so, so kind to me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, 
leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it and I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, overwhelming, never ending, reckless love of God. The Israelites knew some of this. God's patience with them in the desert, patience with them through their many rebellions and even exile. It was an extraordinary patient love of God that they celebrated when they danced and sang and read Deuteronomy all night. Now we have something even greater to celebrate, but we have new life, a transformed life. How amazing our God is, because we certainly didn't earn it or deserve it. So let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you deeply, God, deeply to thank you from deep somewhere inside in our, in our spirits. Father, we, we want to deeply, profoundly thank you for your patient, merciful, long-suffering love for us. Even though we didn't earn it and we couldn't deserve it, God, we know that you have not given us our forgiveness with any reluctance you chased us down like the prodigal's father you've looked for us like the shepherd looking for the sheep that you'll keep doing that because you love us father we thank you that jesus is the provider of living water we thank you that we have new life in him we pray father that this time together worshiping singing, learning from your word, that this time would refresh us most deeply, God. Help our spirits to be one with yours. Help us to go away from here, pilgrimage back home, and help us when we reach there, Father, to be transformed more and more into the likeness of your son. So the world will know that whatever's going on in this world, whatever the problems financially or politically or militarily, health, relationships, whatever those things are, you're still tabernacling with us. You still love us. You, you give us hope when otherwise all hope is lost. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for his blood and the water that flowed from the side.